0: everyday theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. Today with me on Everyday Theology, I have the pleasure to have uh, Dr. Brad Embry, who is an associate professor of Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, and holds a PhD in theology from Durham University, really meaning that he's incredibly smart, um, and he specializes in Second Temple period Jewish and Christian texts. So Brad, thank you so much for being with me today. My
1: pleasure, Aaron. I nearly burst out in laughter when you said incredibly smart. I I normally (laughs) just
0: go with smart. (laughs) Well, I mean, if you're, um, you know, you have to be incredibly smart.
1: Well, I I worked alongside a number of uh, very talented people, and I've had the fortune of keeping in contact with many of them. So I was, it was a good experience.
0: Hashtag jealous. Um, (laughs) If you wouldn't mind telling our listeners a little bit about yourself, your research, and your study before we get into our topic for the day.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, Well, thank you for having me on. Um, I don't do many podcasts, so I'm excited to give this a go. Um, So, as you mentioned, I went to Durham University, and there uh, my doctoral studies were in the area of Second Temple period Jewish literature, but my research really uh, in those Second Temple texts really orbited the use of. Um, You know, for in general terms, kind of Old Testament themes and concepts and how they formed uh, a structure in which some of these later texts were written or interacted with, at least. Um, And I worked on a on a document called the Psalms of Solomon. And uh, but in that process of kind of tracing those Old Testament themes uh, and structures and concepts, of course, you have to become somewhat familiar with them. And I found myself really just sort of, you know, falling in in love with the study of the Old Testament. And so uh, as I as I completed the the Ph.D., uh, and especially with a job market where, you know, normally it's broken along along the lines of the two Testaments, you teach a New Testament or Old Testament in terms of biblical studies, I just naturally gravitated towards towards the Old Testament and right. and I'm I'm really glad you know I haven't I haven't really looked back I still work a little bit in Second Temple period texts we did the two volume Erdman's commentary series on uh, the early Jewish reader which came out a couple of years ago um, and I still keep in touch with some of the Second Temple period stuff but most most of the time now my interests are in, in Old Testament stories and in research and, and certainly in teaching so
0: which if, yeah, if I were to go back, uh, you know, I hesitate to say this, but I there's a big part of me that says if I had to go back, I'm I would feel really drawn at this stage in life to the Old Testament. That's because uh, you're
1: which, getting older and wiser, Aaron. Oh well, yeah, that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and maybe I'm I'm ready for this PhD to be done, and I just want to do anything other than that, right?
1: Yeah, no, I get it, man. No, no, you, there's everything else looks more attractive once you're in the your neck deep into your doctoral work. But um uh, God's yeah, I'm sake. really glad, you know, and 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 the, and the the thing about it is, you know, especially coming from a Christian's, you know, uh, you know, framework of thinking about the Old Testament. I mean, there's there's a lot to. You know what constitutes the you know you know the, the theology and Christian the spiritual sort of exegesis or reading of scripture, which I think probably you know ought to stand at the center of you know how we understand our own Christian walk uh, and what what theology is for a Christian is really the exercise of trying to understand the Old Testament and its content you know in, yeah. in light of the gospel account so you know in a lot of ways you know when you when you read I mean, you know, especially read some of the ancient commentators, a lot of their work is on Old Testament texts. I mean, they're, they're neck deep, you know, talking about, you know, whatever that, you know, the, 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 you know, the nature of God, is, you know, in three parts uh, they're doing that in the Psalms, right. Or that, right, right. You know, they're singing through this in Exodus. So, you know, I think good, a good Christian reader of scripture is one who will naturally be drawn to reading the old Testament, um, more and more. And that, that's one of the, you know, that's one of the, I think for, for my, for me and for some of my colleagues who work in it, you know, who see, uh, you know, who see kind of a Marcionism still alive and well in a lot of places in, in perhaps in more covert ways. That's what's, you know, lamentable to us and what I think is somewhat alarming as well is that, you know, that sort of even even implicit attitude uh is something that really has no place in in,
0: in Christianity. And so, and I hate to say it, but I, I feel like that, you know, for anyone who doesn't know what Marcionite is, right, just oversimplified by saying get rid of the old testament.
1: That's right. Um, yeah.
0: But I feel like that attitude that you're kind of describing there isn't quite so much found in the academy, right? Mm-hmm. It's much more in our churches than it is in the academy, which seems very I, odd to me.
1: No, I think you're right. And and in some ways more alarming. Um, yeah. You know, in large measure, because within the academy, you know, the, the way in which, and this isn't to say this is every part of the academy or every way in which the academy finds, you know, purchase, but... Uh, there's a tendency sometimes to sort of pocket the academy off from, you know, what is considered the, you know, the life of the church or the life of right. believers or whatever. And and so the, you know, the, the problem with those two, you know, coming together and conversing, uh, I think, you know, can be in some ways kind of trotted out in terms of, you know, this is how the rank and file people kind of think implicitly. And then the Academy is often aloof and does its own thing. And, and that's unfortunate. And that's one of the good things about podcasts like yours, because, you know, they try to situate, you know, it's intentionally situated within, uh, you know, the practicing life of Christians, but at the same time is trying to draw on, you know, academics and get them to come out a little bit of their show and.
0: Talk about, and you've done it. Emics not turtles at all, right? Yeah, you've dragged me out from under my rock. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let's do that, and we're going to jump into our topic for today, which is one that I'm particularly excited about. It's talking about judges, right? This really interesting text of the Old Testament, and just for you, you know, here's a little bit of my kind of. Uh, story, and it may resonate with some people about judges, as I as I understood it as a kid, right? So growing up a pastor's kid and growing up in the church, we only really ever heard Old Testament passages kind of given to us in uh, very, well, sterilized ways for sure. But then also just, it didn't matter what happened, it was good and God did it. And so I loved the book of Judges because it kind of gave me this feeling of, well, first off, it was very narrative-driven, right? It's just stories, and especially as a kid who doesn't like stories. Yeah, yeah. And these stories often had huge acts of heroism in them, so great. You know, almost as good as a movie, right? Or Maybe it should be a movie. Um, But there was so much death and killing and bad things happening that as a kid, I just ignored all of that. Cause it was, Hey, this is, this is God and God's justice. Boom. Here it is. Um, and so I loved it, but I also feel like as a kid, I never really got to know the book of judges because I had this very, both sterilized view of it. And also one that really didn't have me engage with deeper questions, right? It was just like this happened and it happened because God is good. And God, God can't stand evil and then evil happened. And then God did it again. Right. Um, and this kind of not repetitious, but kind of cyclical way. Right. So, but I know that you've written on, uh, a better way, right? Like how should we think about this, this text in helpful and good ways. And so I want to open that up to you and just say, help me. Right, help our listeners. So what is the best way that, that we should think about it? What's a more helpful way, and what does it really speak to in terms of our life today?
1: Right. Um, Well, I'll, I'll start talking, and then you know, as you, you know, I'll let you kind of you know probe some of the edges of what I do, or some of the core of what I would say. Uh, yeah. As we go forward. Um, yeah, I mean there's a there's definitely a superficial way of reading and I don't mean that negatively or pejoratively because you know children sometimes read things in in what we might call, you know, from an academic standpoint a very superficial way but that that's right. also the right way. They just right. like, read it and accept it and that's what you should be doing. Um yeah, I,
0: I don't know if I needed the rated R version when I was 10. No, well it would you have know, helped.
1: Yeah, you know, that's right. Well fu- funny story, so my 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 mother Marlene Embry uh When I was, when we were kids, you know, she would read to us at night and she would read, uh, oftentimes read the Bible and we would just, you know, crawl up in bed with her and she'd read it. It was just before we went to bed. Well, she, she would read the Bible from cover to cover. So she would be reading to us, you know, as kids and I, you know, I'd be eight years old, six years old, whatever. And my my mother would be reading right out of Leviticus, and she would just read through chapters, you know, and you just sit there and listen. And then there wasn't a... there wasn't a, you know, sort of a midrashic moment with my mom in those settings where she would sort of unpack what's going on or try to unpack what's going on. She would just yeah. read these stories and then say, good night, sweetie, and off to bed we go. <laughs> so there, and and that's a, you know, there's a, there's a level on which the, you know, a child's imagination can swing from, you know, this is a Cohen Brothers, but not even that, you know, this is, <laughs> a, like a, this is like a felt board of the story of Judges all the way to sort of a Rob Zombie, you know, rendition of, yeah. of Judges. So uh, that was a, you know, I remember as a kid and, sen- and since I've gotten into the study of the Old Testament, I, I go back to those story moments with my mother where she's just sort of, she's just reading it. And I asked her afterwards, you know, later, you know, what what was it about? you know, your, like, what were you thinking and reading, not in a negative way, but what what was going through your mind as you were reading us, you know, these stories straight through, you know, like I say, Leviticus, Judges, you know, difficult portions of the Old Testament to kind of integrate. And she said, well, you know, it's God's word. So I just figured you ought to hear it. And there's something, there's something, you know, there's something beautiful about that approach. And It wasn't something that she came to, you know, it's not like my mom was reading uh, you know, narrative theologians on how to kind of, you know, integrate or work around, you know, stories and what should we do and how should we you know, it wasn't like she was reading anybody, you know, that was, you know, dealing in a critical way with text. She just said this is the word of God and you need to hear it. And so I think to come back to that, I think there there is a superficial reading of judges that can can be very wholesome and healthy even if it's difficult, you know, to kind of get, you know, kind of grasp the content in the sense that it's, these are diff, some of these are very tough stories. Right. Um, mm-hmm. but seeing those patterns as you mentioned, you know, that cyclical sort of pattern especially in the middle portion of the book in 3 through 16 um, I think is is a very helpful way of kind of, you know, kind of coming to terms with what the content of the book's trying to say to us. And, and what I mean by that is that That cyclical pattern is a way of kind of revealing to the reader that there's a problem, not simply with the community of God. And I I like just for your listeners awareness, I like to speak of Israel in terms of community of God, because I think that helps to minimize some of the distance between us and them, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it's still Israel, and I'll still use Israel from time to time, but, you know, Community of God. Uh, there's something problematic with them, you know, in terms of their ability or capacity to kind of dial into what they ought to be. But then that cyclical pattern also indicates that there's something potentially problematic in broader ways. In other words, if we keep repeating this, there's a problem with the people who are repeating it, but then... Maybe if generation after generation is repeating the same issue more or less, then there's something structural that's a problem that yeah. the story is trying to kind of lay bare to us. And I think that's a good starting point as we kind of probe beneath the surface a little bit to say what what is that lesson that judges wants to communicate to us, among many others, but what is the lesson that we're we're meant to hear? um you know in those in those cyclical patterns in other words there's a there's a micro sort of structure that each judge and and generation that you know you know operates you know within you know alongside that judge or that judge operates with each generation right. there's something they themselves you know participate in in this bar, in this circle but then the the consistent pattern that is replicated more or less, again, there's, you know, there's nuances from one judge to the next, um, that, that indicates a bigger structural issue. And yeah, I think showing that a little bit is, is a way to kind of penetrate a little bit beneath the surface for the story of judges. And, and, and other, in other ways, in other words, to kind of grab at it and, and find new handles for a contemporary community, which, and which is, that, yeah.
0: yeah, no, it, I, I, I mean I mean it when I say literally you just saying that all of a sudden reshaped my mind immediately right even even that little kind of snippet where you kind of bring out this if we talk about the cycle right there's the falling away from the law and from you know the works of God and who God is to doing things their own way to the need for a judge to come up because the people had been overthrown or, you know, been ruled by someone else and the judge comes up and the judge does what the judge does and, you know, reclaims the the land for Yahweh or the people. And you can correct anything I'm saying here, just kind of giving a basics of this, of the cycle. Yeah. You know, the, the reality is I always, always, was told as a kid, well, you know, people just, they just got bad again, right? Like even theologically, it's just, you know, people's depravity. This is just, this is the natural thing that's going to happen. But never once did I stop to consider exactly what you're saying there, which is maybe there's something else going on. If, If this is different groups of people over a different, you know, a long period of time, continually doing the same thing. Maybe there's something that we've missed when we've oversimplified this to just people being people. Right. And What may that be?
1: Yeah, no, I think, I think that's a, that's an excellent way to kind of elongate that a little bit. And that's where a lot of my work right now, as I think about, about judges or when I talk to people about judges or when I teach in the course, that's where a lot of my work kind of orbits now is, you know, what is that, It you know, if I use micro, what is that macro sort of thing that Judges is trying to communicate to us? And if you think about it in terms, and just like you say, you know, these are, you know, historically we deal with this, you know, there's, so here's this community and now I'll use Israel. Here's Israel, you know, it's like the snapshot into the past, this sort of artifact right. that we pull out and it's, that was what they did then. And I think we miss some of the, you know, content of what judges might be saying to us as, you know, as the word of God, as Christians. And again, we can kind of come back around to that, and, and, you know, as we go forward. But it, it's, there's, something that's, there's something that is trying to explore. You know, this is a community of God that was endowed, you know, with, and here's my Anglicanism, the gifts of God for the people of God to act in the ways that they ought to act in this world. And if you want to start to broaden this to you know the you know kind of the unfolding purposes of God for this community to you know restore those you know, those things that were lost the fall and, and create a context in which God can work you know through them to the whole world. They were given those incredibly potent and powerful gifts of the law of the tabernacle. So you've got yeah. the word in the presence. They have what you know, are taken as prophetic figures. Um, you know, characters like Moses and Joshua, and uh, in the sense that they are, you know, leaders who are speaking to them about the nature of the covenant and what it means to live in that reality. And yet, here's a community endowed with all those gifts who constantly falls away. And so, on one level, I think there is a there is a powerful point there about. Whatever we want to say, it's an ontological reality. It's a, you know, this is the way people are wired. We're wired to have the good nature and the evil nature, and we're going to incline towards the evil. But I also think that there's something about that commentary of what the community ultimately does that speaks not simply to the nature of the people or a people, but to the nature of a people in relationship to God through this covenant, so how do we understand what those mechanisms within the covenant are are in place to do? In other words, is judges in a way uh, making a comment on the limitations of the law, its ability or perhaps inability to actually shape somebody to do and be what they ought to do and be full stop? Now, it's not to say that the law is not important, but rather simply to say that the law is a it's a it's a tool that can help you towards something. Right. But it's not that something. And the moment it ever becomes that something, we see the problems that it can that can kind of orbit around it, whether we get caught up too much in the law. Or we see that the law is easily marginalized. We can kind of push it off or forget it or move it over here. So I think for me, the angle with judges anymore now is trying to probe if there is something that's missing in the story of judges that would help. To create a community that actually could withstand the movement from one generation to the next, if that's where you want to put it, framing it with judges' kind of own, you know, thought world. What is that thing? Um, and if it's not the tabernacle, because the priesthood, you know, virtually disappears in Judges, which I think is a is the author's one of the authors' um, kind of subtle points that he's making. Uh, it's this disappearance of the priesthood, which is active at the end of Joshua and then reemerges at the end of Judges. But in between, you know, <laughs> we have these these very, very light handed sort of overtures to the priesthood. Otherwise, they're just gone. They're not, you know, they're not in play. It's, it's all these judges. But if we're missing, though, if those elements are still somehow active within the community and yet the community continues to do this thing, what is it that is what is it that is lacking and how do we. How do we deploy, if that's the right word? I don't like it in some ways because it suggests user usership of something that I don't right. know use in that, quite that way. But if we deploy judges as a kind of a uh, almost a hermeneutical tool for understanding these these things that define uh, and I think rightly define our own you know Christian spirituality, whether you know word, presence, um the structures that are around us, what is it that judges tells us? What are the things that the book can sort of lay in front of us to say just just be careful, you know, remember what it is that actually holds all of this together and if I were to put that in a nutshell, and this is all part of my working you know my working set of ideas, is that judges tells us that without us, without a without a connection to the real presence of God hmm. these other elements that have become that are gifts of god that were given to us by god through god actually can become real dangers to the community Hmm. not that they're dangerous in their own right by any stretch but um there there is a possibility that these things endowed with this power have the power to destroy they have to be they have to be pointed in the right direction. If right. That makes sense. It's almost so, like, I mean, maybe some of your readers really quickly will know, you know, the X-Men, this, the, 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 the I'm not great at these sort of references, but it just came, <laughs> it just came to me, man. So bear with me, but you no, know, go the, for the, it. you know, the character Cyclops. Yeah. So he has this, this powerful vision, right? Well, if he, right. if he opens his eyes, it just, it is whatever that ray that shoots out of his head will just just destroy everything in front of him so he has to put on this set of glasses that can help him focus it and right. in a way i think law is the unbridled power
0: interesting
1: or or the tabernacle in its own way can become the unbridled power and it's the it's a proper sort of understanding of the rel- the relative power that those institutions hold and i say relative to God's real presence in the life of the person that is part of what the book of judges is exploring in, in kind of these touch points. Right.
0: If, if I can, I don't know if this is going to take us into a weird place. And so if it does just be like, let's not do that. And here's something else, right? Um, Like a dog with a treat, like get me off the attention of something. Right. but something you've said kind of sparked my imagination, especially because some of my PhD work, though it's not in the Old Testament, is on you know James Dunn yeah, and this kind of new perspective, reality or, or thought process of covenantal nomism, of course, E.P. Sanders really being the guy there, uh, is what you're saying is almost, yes, maybe the way, and if I can explain this to the listeners who may not be familiar with some of these terms, right? that there is an idea in kind of modern scholarship that says that the law itself functioned as uh, what Dunn calls boundary markers. They are the things that would bring people into the community of God or the things that were there to allow people to remain in the community of God in the event of going astray. But what you're saying has a bit of a different vision of what that Torah law was really there for, and less of an in and out reality, who's in, who's out, or if you do get out, here's your way back in, and has more to do with how God's presence, and maybe this is the Anglican part of you, is being mediated to us where the real idea wasn't about being in or out, but the presence of God always. Do I understand you correctly? I,
1: yeah, I think that's a I think that's a way a good way of putting it. And one of the things about uh, you know taking up you know your, your mention of Dunn is that in a way it can be both and not in the sense that both are right, but rather simply that the way in which the law it you know was received was you know in in a sense as Dunn has pointed out. Right. In other words, there there were communities for whom that that was the way the law was understood, right? And yeah. and that's and that's just a historical you know sort of reality. Um, but yes, it's too pro. And here's where I think the spiritual to Jesus side of things is helpful when thinking through. So I, I, yeah, you know, I think there's historical. So take take a text even like Judges where you know there's this historical part to it. But coming to grips with the historical part of Judges, and if you sort of dealt with this, you know, this book in historical terms, can be somewhat frustrating. Um, not huh. least because there's, you know, there's, there seem to be some chronological issues with it. Um, you know, it's, its cyclical nature suggests that it's strongly driven by trying to tell a particular story and not so much, you know, journalistic which, you know, drives us up the wall when we think about
0: history texts. So you're saying but, it's not a history text.
1: Well, I think it, it it's like uh, it's like approaching it, you know, in the sort of the multi-senses of scripture, that there's right. a historical component to it, which is a jumping off point for coming to grips with other aspects of the story right. trying to tell. So, and this is where I think that notion of spiritual exegesis is helpful because, you know, if you take something I and mean, we're just using the law as a, a conversation uh, piece, you know, Jesus and his interactions in the gospel accounts with these uh, with scribes and Pharisees, you know, I have a sympathetic view towards the scribes and Pharisees in one respect because, like, you know, when you read about who they were and what they did, you know, that the religious life was their life they were deeply committed to you know the traditions that they saw were gifts from god to them for their benefit and they you know had had a a deep knowledge and you know memory a deep knowledge of scripture and a memory of their past and what it is that had shaped you know their their communal identity And yet at the same time, again, if we trust, you know, the gospel's rendition of this and we trust, you know, the interaction of Jesus, when they see the word, you know, here to pick up John's language, when they see the word sort of sitting in front of them, they have no idea that, that that's what it is. In other words, there's a there's a sense in which these people who are deeply invested in the literal sort of reality of Scripture, the what I would say, the historical reality of Scripture, the tangible reality of Scripture. And probably many of them, you know, had it memorized. I mean, yeah. St. Bonavent, St. Bonavent should be proud of these people. Right. You know, these are the people who have, you know, are at the starting point yet at that at those moments, they are in some ways at greatest risk we're actually seeing the content of scripture when it's manifested in front of them. And I think that there's something to that, you know, to then go back and take that sort of New Testament picture of the law and use or deploy that in some respects to kind of read through again as a as an aid to try to understand what might be the central concern or problem within the story of judges. Right. What is it that this what is it that the story is laying in front of us to say these are the issues? You know, and even which, short, even shortcomings, you know, within the, within the, the microstructure of the judges themselves. So which judge, which,
0: you, yeah, you said ahead. that about the the Pharisees and Sadducees, because I too have felt for a long time, they get such a bad rap, uh, in their, in their maybe sometimes overzealous fervor. Yeah, of, they're, the whip,
1: they're the whipping boys. There's no doubt about that.
0: And I think, um, yeah, that was just like a point. I was like, here you go. Here's something. I'm glad someone else uh, feels <laughs> right, that right, way. Right. But now the question I want to ask, which is maybe you can provide an example or give us a story and judges in which can provide us a way to look through this lens that you're talking about in kind of a spiritual exegesis, uh, not focusing so much on the cyclical nature, but the reason for the individual, um, story and maybe you can help kind of the listeners see that through one of the stories of the judges.
1: Sure. Uh, I think so. Well, I'll give it a try. How about that? Um, and there may be two ways to approach this and perhaps you can help keep me on track. One, one would be to pick up a scene and this is a scene I've, I have been thinking about and working on a bit, uh, in a more focused manner recently and that's the story of Jeff and his daughter Uh, so look at look at that that scene kind of through this this lens and and see what emerges or or use that scene to kind of hone our lens and then this the second thing is to actually look at the bigger structure of Judges itself because one of the things that's I don't know if it's surprising to people but it it can come as a surprise from time to time is that the story of Judges, uh, the book of Judges rather, contains, of course, these stories of these individual characters and their experiences. And it does this in a cyclical way, this repetition of, you know, the cycle. But it's not the full sweep of the book itself, because once you advance beyond Samson and you go beyond 16 into 17 through 21, there is no judge. So yeah. the this- The story concludes in a a situation, and I think that's very important, you know, thinking about this bigger structure, perhaps at play, is that that loss of the judge as an individual character at the end of the book, I think, is a critical piece to the way in which we read the I don't know what you want to call it the interior dynamics of the story itself you know the way in which these these periodic moments uh, you know the judges these stories that are told um how they how they function to kind of convey a a bigger picture uh and I think 17 through 21 is a useful way of kind of highlighting that so we can come back around to that but let's let's start we should we go to Jeff the first Jeff and his daughter
0: yeah let's do that one first
1: okay so uh if your if your listeners i'm I'm sure i mean the story of Jepta is fairly well known but the 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 sort of cliff notes version of it is that Jephthah is a judge and he's considered one of the major judges you know's got an elongated story uh surrounding him uh he comes from we might say suspicious beginnings or humble beginnings depending upon how you look at it he is uh he is a. He is a uh, his father had him through consort with what is typically translated as a prostitute, and as a result of this, Jephthah is estranged from his family. And hmm. one of the important pieces to the reading of the story, I think, that is often missed, is that a big part of the story of Jephthah is is an issue of inheritance. Now, I don't think that that sits sort of front and center on Jephthah's mind when he's going through the process of functioning as a judge. But I have a feeling it's not too far from the center. Um, and if it's if it's not on the mind of Jephthah himself, then I do think it's something that the author wants us to keep in view as it relates to Jephthah's own interaction with his daughter. So the story of Jephthah and his daughter. So as most people will know, Jephthah makes a vow. So Jephthah's been uh sort of tasked uh initially by the people who's been requested and then god endows jephthah with god's spirit to undertake Mm -hmm. this task as the judge uh and in the process of doing this jephthah utters a vow to the lord and essentially the vow is is if you grant me success in this conflict that is to come then the first thing that appears to me from my house i will sacrifice to you right and as the story unfolds, then it's the first thing that appears from his house, house is his daughter. And some people don't think that she was sacrificed, don't think we need to get into the details there. I, I do think that this resulted in a sacrifice that tends to be the easier reading, um, even though more difficult in some respects. Um, and but the, the point that I would make there in relationship to what we've been talking about is that for a long period of time, this, Jephthah has come under criticism for the vow. It was, you know, it's considered a rash vow. He didn't think this vow through. He, you know, why did he ever make that vow? Right, right. You know, what, what's the Seems what's like a the,
0: strange vow to begin with, right? Yeah, what's the point of making this
1: particular vow? And and you know, did he did he hate his wife? Did he want his wife to come out? You know, was there this sort of like, <laughs> you know, I need to get rid of my wife. How can I do this? Well, I'll make a vow, and she's sure to be the first one to come out and say something to me. Um, but. Uh, I, I'm a little more interested in the fact that he made a vow at all. Um and then I and then in the fulfillment of that vow, which is both Jephthah's act but also his daughter's um, collusion's not the right word, his daughter's own involvement in the fulfillment of that vow. So let, let's let's yeah. unpack this a little bit. The way in which the story unfolds is Jephthah uh, comes home, sees his daughter, uh, reacts very strongly to this. You know, basically, my daughter, what is it that you've done? You you know, I am undone. Um, and, but then the text goes on to define this daughter of Jephthah. And I think the language there is very important uh, because when Jephthah comes to his house, this is in 1134, his daughter was coming out to meet him and she was singing and dancing. Now the singing and dancing would have been a, a, a normal way for female characters and households to greet returning warriors. That's, that's not an uncommon thing. And it's not an unexpected thing, which of course is part of the criticism of Jephthah in the uttering right. of his vow. But then they, the the, but then 34 defines her as his one and only child. Now, English readers might hear that because that phrase is something that would might stick out to you but uh, Hebrew readers of scripture would certainly hear that that is a, a very strong connection to the story of Isaac and the near sacrifice of Isaac
0: mm, yeah
1: you know this is this is Abraham's one and only son and i i think that that connects well there's other ways in which that might play itself out but what we can focus on here is that now, and and Jephthah has an inheritance issue, so he, he is slowly finding himself back into a form of inheritance through this process of his act as a judge, but at that moment where everything seems to be coming together for him around issues of inheritance, he has to, because of this vow, offer up his one and only child He has no son or daughter besides her as a sacrifice. Now, if you know some of the legal dimensions from, say, Numbers, where we have the story of Zelophehad's daughters, they bring this issue to Moses and they say to him, our father died and has no sons. So we're worried about his inheritance as he comes into the land. And Moses takes this matter to God. God says, you know, they're right, daughters can inherit, and the reason for this is principally so that we can retain this inheritance structure as the people enter into the land. Well, suddenly Jephthah's whole whole sort of world is starting to come unraveled along these legal lines where now Jephthah has endangered, I mean, his daughter, of course, is a central focus here in many respects because she's going to be sacrificed. But her sacrifice also rep- represents, if we sort of play this out, the, Jephthah's own loss of name this is in relationship to the the daughters and that ruling, which comes from God through Moses. So it endangers his own inheritance to come. So what does this look like? Well, the vow. Coming back to the vow, vow making was not something, yes, we can say that Jephthah made a rash vow. Jephthah should have thought it through. But vow making itself is something that has sort of, a, what do you want to call it, a time honored tradition in Israelite society? Yeah. Vow making is also part of the legal structure of Israelite society. So what Jephthah was doing, even if the particulars of it are a little strange, what Jephthah was doing was actually something that you could say is, you know, noteworthy. He was making a vow to the Lord and he was involving God in this process of securing victory. This is something that has sort of a time-honored tradition within Israelite society. Once he does that, though, he has entered into a legal framework with god he has participated in something that has legal requirements if you make a vow to yahweh you've got to keep that vow right this is something that his daughter points out to him and i think it's in that relationship that we see if i could put kind of like but not you know broad brushstrokes to it we see Jephthah accessing an element in the law That his daughter then says yes to, and that accessing that element of the law actually destroys another regulation that is given to him through the ruling of Zelophehad's daughters. In other words, the story of depth and his daughters becomes this collision where law undermines law. Yeah. And I wonder if there isn't something in that whole sort of process. Now, you know, what, what do you want to say? Do you want to say that, you know, we wish Jephthah would have, you know, his daughter said, you got to make good on this, this law, dad. And he says, well, the heart of the law doesn't mean your death. It has to mean something else.
0: Right. I mean, maybe a way, even a go serve, you know, at the tabernacle type of metaphor. Yeah, and,
1: and that's the other response that people, you know, that sc- scholars give is that she was, you know, destined to a life of virginity, which which meant a seclusion from, from society. But there's an element even there, though, that, you know, regardless of whether or not she sacrificed or, you know, is secluded in virginity, uh, you know, there's this damage that's done to. To, Lofa, or sorry, to Jephthah's longevity and to these inheritance issues. And remember, protecting this inheritance is a criti- of critical importance during this period of transition from wilderness wanderings to settlement in the land. And that's why I say this inheritance matter, I think, for the story of Jephthah is a biggie because it's it connects to, once again, this legal framework. So in other words, there's something about, you know, this whole process of judge if we could use this as an example, that there's there's a there's a willingness to participate in the law, or if you if you go back to the story of Gideon, there's a willingness to participate in the tabernacle, but in so doing, in participating in the law, in participating in the tabernacle, there's a jeopardy the, the, the community is put in a certain jeopardy because of that process. In other words, the these, Interesting. Yeah. these these gifts of God become, like I said, they become these dangerous elements. And I think that in a way what those start to do, those stories start to do is expose that there has to be something else that is the binding agent or the connective tissue that holds these laws together. Right. Hold this reality together and actually makes it something that's not, that's not dangerous in that regard, even though, you know, interacting with God always it, you know has its inherent risks because God is holy, other God is holy and we are not. And there's this risk in that engagement,
0: but. Um, it's it's almost if, as if, if I can ask this question, it's almost as if the ancient, you know, Israelites and, and, the compilers of judges. As if, and I could be this can be going way out on a limb, and I'm in, you know, danger of falling off and breaking my neck real quick. But it's almost as if they were themselves seeing the potholes in the law and writing about it. As if not that the law itself was the problem, maybe, but that the way the law is used can itself actually be antithetical to the law
1: yeah i think i think and that's i think that's right and, and another way of putting it we don't see the law as having a an end goal that it it represents a, an, a, an activity that moves towards the conclusion you know if we want to take up like levinson's comment this is the end of history right, right? this is something that has a force towards a a fulfillment and a resolution if it is a static entity that sort of sits there like a the great monolith, and we we pick and choose the places that we're going to kind of wrap our arms around, then we miss something of the the real dynamic nature of what the Word of God is to us. Now, yeah. I'm, I'm not a person who's like pick and choose and you know, cultural context determines how we read these things. And if we don't feel comfortable with this particular, you know, text, then we find ways of kind of moving around it. Right. But at the same time, there's something about, you know, the, the whole sort of nature of the spiritual and religious life. And I think both of those, and I would partition those two things, you know, that there's a religious life that does these things and there's a spiritual life that sort of Says we are made up of this, these sorts of things, we're physical, we're spiritual, and we tend towards spiritual actions and they could be, but they could be all sorts of things. You can be a a very spiritual Buddhist, so to speak, but you're not of a particular origin. But there's there's this confluence between what is spiritual and what is religious. And it's that confluence, that meeting point where we can work out the relative health of a, a community. And it's, it's, prioritizing again, one over the other, it you know, you run risks. And how do we navigate that? And I think stories like judges can be helpful because they they help they help point us in the direction of we need something, right. you know, that sort of governs us. Sorry, I interrupted you. Go no, ahead.
0: no, no. I was interrupting you. I it just it just hit me. It's you know, again, as an analogy, maybe at the risk of oversimplifying it, but the analogy is the same way that the church today, if we go way back to the beginning of our conversation, has this kind of Marcionite problem, right? This, what do we do with the Old Testament? Eh, it's a bit hard. Eh, it's someone else's letter. Eh, the New Testament is all we need kind of mentality. Where if we read like what you're kind of offering for us today, this reading of Judges, we recognize In the story of Judges itself, that the struggle that the church has in thinking about the Torah law and thinking about how do we best live in light of God and who God is, is the same struggle that they were having much closer to the time of not even the, you know, the finished formulation of the Torah law. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're asking the same, again, not the exact same question, but the heart of it is the same question about the law in this story, do I fulfill this part of the law or do I fulfill this one? Either way I'm breaking the law somehow, right? Um, that we have the same struggle with in terms of, you know, when we go to read the Torah law and we don't want to kill our grandma because she's wearing clothes made of two different types of fabric. That's, right? That's right. <laughs> like Yeah, no, that's right. And and to me <laughs> and that's nor fascinating. Never never <laughs> any
1: of your readers kill their grandmother if they're wearing Ever. A wool. Yeah, don't, don't and poor do grandmas
0: should be left alone, right? <laughs> Go visit them after COVID's over. Their clothes, uh, clothes
1: might be in poor taste, but that's no reason to laugh.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, but to me that's fascinating. I mean that that is exciting to think about. That brings for me new life into the book of judges in a way I would have never have looked at it before because I, I would have never have thought about it in this look at their struggle with the law that I clearly can't see on my own as a reader of the text, because I am not an ancient Israelite person that already has these things in mind while reading it.
1: Well, and immediately, I mean, that, 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 I, I really appreciate your, your summary. I think it's very helpful. And, you know, you know, as you, as you kind of unpack part of what you were getting at part of what our conversation has sort of suggested is that the moment you find yourself in, in that sort of situation where, you know, you're not talking so much about, you know, an ancient Israelite artifact, but you're talking about something. And that's why I stressed earlier that I refer to this as the community of God you're already in a place where the reading of that particular text is much nearer to your own spiritual and religious life because you see within that not so much the actions that you yourself are taking. So, you know, we're not sacrificing our own daughters, you know, but it's to recognize that if we move in a direction that prioritizes, say, for instance, the keeping of the law at all costs without understanding what the law is meant to serve you towards uh, being in relationship with, Yeah. which I would say is this, again, this real presence of God active in the community, right. um, then you, you run the risk of creating a context in which that sort of sacrifice is possible. Or you create a context in which the the rape and dismemberment of the Levites concubine in Judges 19 is possible. In other words, it's not so much that we're looking to find, you know, one for one uh, relationships, but rather simply to say this picture of the community of God endowed with all of these gifts and Mm -hmm. and resources that God had given to them is precisely the place where we find these awful stories unfolding. Mm. Now, that ought to be a wake-up call to us, and you don't see that sort of poignant reminder or story anywhere. I mean, you can see it in places in the the New Testament where maybe Paul is railing against a particular community for their problems, but to have a story, and you, you touched on this, you know, as a child reading this, having a story where you can pull children in you can pull new believers in. you can pull people in with these difficult but also kind of rich imagery driven stories and use those as placeholders to say this isn't what we obviously want to do this is what we keep this is what we can become so the way in which we interact with those gifts that have been given to us is to look constantly and freshly, you know, each each day, each you know, each Sabbath, each Sunday, when we gather and worship in whatever form now in these crazy these crazy times, as we look afresh at what it is that is that is driving this, what is it that makes us a spiritual and religious person? And if if our answer is it is, uh, you know, it's Psalm 22, we may not be doing enough service to either Psalm 22 or to the You know, the Christian life because you know, we are in a relationship not with the Bible, we are in a relationship with the living God. Yeah. And and the biblical text is a way of and a critical way, I make you know, this is what I do. I make my living studying it. I love it, I'm passionate about it. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, my desire is an encounter with God. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's not yeah. So
0: Yes and Amen. And (laughs) so
1: the and then the other part to that, uh, well, I'll leave you, 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 you're the, you're the director. Go
0: ahead. No, no, no. I don't want to cut you off. We're just, we're coming close to the end here of our time together. And I wanted to say, cause I was hoping to, in our time get to judges 19 uh, and the Levite and his concubine, cause it's such a strange story. It's so strange. I mean, the whole thing. Is, yeah. uh, so maybe what we'll just have to do is have you come back in a season Uh, our next season to, uh, talk to us about that one. Cause more than anything, I'm just interested. Like I want to hear your take on such a crazy chapter. Um, but we are coming to the end here, sadly, but so I want to ask this question. I mean, everything you've said today has been so helpful for me, hopefully for our listeners and reframing the way that we think about, uh, this text, maybe giving it new eyes for us to approach and, you know, let these stories, these stories we hear as kids, hopefully not Judges 19, because that one would be really tough, uh, as a kid, but, uh, these stories.
1: And my, and my mom read right through it, man, oh. nine year old or whatever. And I'm listening to Judges 19 and then, you know, pat on the butt off the bed, sweetie.
0: So oh, gosh, I was, I would, oh, that's got nightmares written all over it.
1: Yeah. Maybe it explains a little bit about
0: me. So. <laughs> Go ahead, though. yeah well if you wouldn't mind letting our listeners know where they can learn more from you if you have any writings anything that they can uh, go and read or purchase so they can be more connected with your work
1: sure well the I did write that chapter um, you know I forget the year it came out it's in the fortress press series texts and contexts and it's the judge's volume. And it's on Judges 19.
0: Um, so they can get like a preview of a podcast coming, you know, sometime yeah, and in the any, future.
1: Anytime I'd be, I, I, I've enjoyed myself, but I didn't, I didn't know, I didn't know that I would, but I did.
0: Um oh, Yeah. Yeah, no, no. Since <laughs> uh, I presumptuously just said you're gonna do another podcast with me, I probably should have asked first.
1: No, no, no. You had every right. you were, you were reading the situation very well. Um no, I'd be happy to have yeah. enjoyed it. Um and I enjoy I enjoy our chats. I, I really do. Um but most most of my work now is newer stuff that I you know I'm kinda coming around to as a result of te- you know, teaching the course on Joshua and Judges. Um I've been interested in the book for some time. Um, but it's only recently that I've turned my attention to it. I had other projects and, you know, going on. So the, the stuff on, uh, Jephthah, I've read a couple of papers at different conferences on him and her, and, uh, I have a couple of article linked projects that are in the works. I don't know that it will become a bigger project than that, um, at the moment, I feel like what I can say, I can probably say in the articles. Um, but you know, these things can have a life of their own and,
0: uh, I've enjoyed the, so enjoyed the keep work. an eye out for upcoming. Yeah.
1: yeah. And I'm, I'm hopeful that I can get around to them sooner than later, but, uh, you know, there's all sorts of things going on. So,
0: Oh, that is true. Well, Brad, thank you so much for taking the time to enlighten me enlighten our listeners into thinking about judges and maybe some fresh perspective on it it's been a wonderful time i can't wait to have you back
1: my pleasure aaron thanks for for hosting me and uh happy
0: happy to do it again wonderful we'll talk soon sounds good